From University of Utah Health and Scope Radio, this is Pioneering the Future, stories of discovery and innovation. I'm Kyle Wheeler. The theme of today's episode is redefining diabetes. I'll be speaking with Dr. Scott Summers about four discoveries in this area that have happened at the University of Utah and that have significant implications. Dr. Summers is the co-director of the Diabetes and Metabolism Research Center at the University of Utah. He's also a professor and the department chair of Nutrition and Integrative Physiology. So without any further preamble, here is my interview with Dr. Scott Summers. One of the things that I like to do first off is to just learn a little bit about the people that I'm talking to uh, kind of as an icebreaker. So I guess my question to you is when you were young, as maybe a teenager or early 20s, what did you imagine doing with your career? And uh, how did you end up where you are now? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Actually, I, I'm probably one of the people that did envision myself doing this. Um, you know, my was I was 14 years old and my father had um, had just run to the hospital because he'd heard his mother was about to to pass away and she was going to pass away from diabetes. And he came back and she lived for another 10 years, but he came back running to the bathroom and drinking water like crazy. And he was, he was diabetic. And, and at that time when I was 14, I actually told him, I'm going to find a cure for you. I'm going to figure this out, you know, and I was a pretty good student. So I thought, well, this will be pretty easy. And, you know, so here we are. 40 years later, I haven't found a cure for him. And it turns out to be really, really hard. <laughs> so that's, that's amazing. That's the story. But You know, it, it's interesting. And all the people that I talk to, it seems like uh, it seems like health scientists, maybe a higher percentage of them than others, uh, planned on doing what they're doing. <laughs> but that's an incredible story, kind of a background behind that. You know, I think a lot of the people in diabetes in particular, you know, get into it because of a family member. And right now, one in three people in the U.S. have prediabetes, 100 million people. So it's pretty hard for all of us not to have a relative who has this this condition. That's that's uh, incredibly topical in terms of just like what you just cited, that one in three has prediabetes. So yeah, of course, the, the topic today, as we talked to Scott Summers here, is that we want to talk about diabetes and, and metabolic disease and discoveries that are happening here at the University of Utah uh, in, in this area of research. I think before we dive into looking at some specific discoveries that have happened uh, in, in labs and in clinics here at the University of Utah is maybe let's, let's define a few terms. As you mentioned, diabetes touches most, if not all of us, in some way, shape, or form. But could you kind of help define for us what diabetes is and, and within that maybe differentiate type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Sure, I'll, I'll do my best. It's, it is a complicated disease. So, um, you know, after we eat a meal, then we secrete this hormone called insulin. And insulin tells the body that, okay, this person just ate. You need to take all the food they ate and you need to do something with it. You need to store it, you need to save it for later, you need to do something. Um, and diabetes is simply when the amount of insulin you produce is insufficient to meet the body needs. And, uh, you know, sort of full stop, that's the definition. Now, the flavors of diabetes happen because you have different places where the defect is. And so in some people, they they just can't produce insulin at all. And that's sort of your classic type one diabetes. 
It tends to happen in children. A long time ago, we used to say it only happened in children. That's clearly not the case. And then you have a, you have this entire gamut of people where you have some people that actually produce a lot of insulin. They probably produce more insulin than most people, but that insulin doesn't work very well because the cells have become resistant to it. And the thing is that we, we sort of define type one and type two as the people on the edges. But the reality is a lot of people live in the middle. And so type one and type two is a spectrum of disorders. And, you know, there are a whole bunch of folks that that are a little bit like type one, a little bit like type two, or at some point they start out as a type two and then their body just gives up and quits producing insulin. So they move more and more down the towards a type one diabetic. So uh, I, I suspect there are about a thousand different diabetes disorders that lie within those two definitions of type one and type two. That makes sense. You know, I, I actually, my older sister, I think falls into what that kind of spectrum that you just described of starting with type two and kind of seemingly having come to, a, a, you know, type one diabetes in terms of how it looks. Um, so that's, that's very interesting that, that it, it, I like how you classify that as, as it's a spectrum. It may not look the same across the board for everybody, even though we maybe have these uh, nice silos of type one, type two that we use in, in talking about diabetes. Um, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, no, I was just going to add, add, agree with that, that it, it is a complicated disease and people present in very strange ways. My father was 38 when he got diabetes and he was an elite athlete at the time and incredibly wow. fit. He um, had won the 10K Masters in three states. He, um, you know, was just this, this impressive um, specimen. And he got this diabetes. And at the time, they said anybody who got it late in life was, was a type 2 diabetic. And we now know that that's not even close to true. Yeah. And he went on insulin and became an insulin-dependent diabetic and was a pretty traditional type 1. Um, but at the time, we just didn't understand the disease very well. And so it, it, it's really easy to build up stereotypes about what diabetes is, but but you really miss the complexity of the disease because it presents in so many people in so many different ways. That and that's a really good point, and I think that that will set us up nicely for talking about some of these discoveries and is seeing that complexity there. I think before we dive into looking at some of these discoveries a little more specifically, though, I do want to kind of continue with defining some terms. Another term that I think we hear, but maybe is a little less familiar to people is, is metabolic disease. Um, could you help describe, and I know that's a very broad term, but you could you kind of help describe what a metabolic disease is? Yeah, sure can. So, you know, every cell in the body uses what we eat for energy, right? So it uses the sugars we eat, the fats we eat, and the proteins we eat. And it metabolizes them and it'll turn them into energy or it'll turn them into other things that the body needs to make more cells or to, you know, build up this part of the cell or that part of the cell. And it turns out in just about every disease, that process goes awry. Now in diabetes, it's a pretty classic case because we lose our ability to handle sugar first and, and also to some degree uh, fat and protein. And so that sort of emerged as the first metabolic disease because there are defects in this pathway and how you use these nutrients. It turns out that 
most diseases are metabolic <laughs> diseases. So I, I skew the term a little bit and I, and I use it all the time. So I have to say that, that that is the cluster of diseases I work on. But we know that in cancer, tumors change the way they metabolize uh, glucose in a way that they can make more tumor cells. And so cancer okay. turns out to be a metabolic disease. Infections like COVID come in and they hijack the host and they change the metabolism in a way that helps the virus make more virus. So infectious disease turned out to be metabolic disease. Interesting. I, I think generally when scientists use the term, though, we really are referring to the cluster of diseases associated with obesity. And that includes diabetes, it includes heart disease, it includes fatty liver disease, it includes kidney disease, and it includes certain types of cancer, which really are um, are disproportionately high in people with obesity. And so I think that's sort of the cluster of disease that most people refer to as metabolic disorders. Um, I think if you really are strict about the definition, though, it would be hard not to find a disease that's a metabolic disorder. That's that's a really good point. And I, one of the questions I kind of had, and, and and you mentioned this, you know, from the get go, is that a third of Americans have pre-diabetes, um, but these other metabolic diseases seem to have just really broad implications on public health in general. And so, uh, it, it seems to be of broad interest to be studying these. Yeah. So about a third of the people with pre-diabetes will go on to develop diabetes, but. A huge number of those people with prediabetes will go on to develop heart disease or liver disease or kidney disease. That prediabetic state, um, which, you know, is defined by, you know, uh, uh, some hypertension, uh, you know, difficulty processing glucose, you know, a little bit of belly fat. That condition predisposes you to so many disorders beyond just diabetes. That's, that's, yeah, I mean, it's so so broadly applicable in terms of our understanding and things that we experience in our, in our health. Let's, let's maybe move into talking about some of these discoveries that have happened here at the university of Utah. The first one I want to talk about, there's, there's a variety of co-authors that kind of uh, came across some discoveries in regards to the complex causes of type one diabetes. Um, now this, this particular discovery may be a bit heady uh, in terms of, Deal, de talking about what's happening with type 1 diabetes. And like you alluded to, to begin with, there's there's a spectrum of things that could be going on. Um, my understanding is is that type 1 diabetes could be characterized as an autoimmune disease. And as we jump into talking about type 1 diabetes, could you kind of help us understand what an autoimmune disease is? Yes. Well, an autoimmune disease is simply when um, your immune systems start starts to mistake cells in your body as a foreign pathogen and it starts to go in and try and degrade them and kill them. And so in the case of type 1 diabetes, what happens is there's a particularly small set of cells called pancreatic beta cells that produce all the insulin that you need. This set of cells sits in something called the islets of Langerhans and it's about 1% of the pancreas. So it's a very small okay. part of a very big organ. And for some reason, um, it's a fairly fragile population and uh, of cells, and the body will identify it as something that's a problem and has, will go in and infect those cells which are occupying this pancreas, and it'll destroy them. 
And that's sort of the classic type one diabetes that often occurs in children. It's because of this, this body mistaking these cells for something that, uh, that is, is from another place and it goes in and it destroys, destroys these cells that we critically need. Okay. So, and then, and then this particular discovery, like I said, that was co-authored here at the University of Utah, it, it's described as that there's a, a large majority of immune T cells that target beta cells for destruction, like you destru- described, uh, and they do so because they uh, detect odd versions of, of the insulin peptide that have abnormally fused with other proteins. So can you help me understand how this is kind of a, a new discovery in our understanding of, of type 1 diabetes? Yeah, and, well, this has been the big question, right? Is why do we, um, why do we identify those cells as this foreign pathogen? And what this group has found is they've identified um, this new type of antigen, this new type of derivative uh, of insulin, insulin that that then becomes identified by the T cells, and that's the key thing, and that that's important because that could mean that we could identify therapeutics to maybe block that autoimmune reaction, block that destruction of those cells. So, and that was something I was very curious about with with looking at this, and like I said, it. it it can feel a little heady for those of us that aren't aren't researchers, but I was curious if that opens up the possibility because I, I think you alluded to this earlier. We used to think of type one diabetes as something that appears in children, um, you know. But I've heard stories of people being, you know, in college or even later when when they start to manifest having type one diabetes. So, is there an implication here that maybe there could be some kind of therapeutics that that head that off uh, the 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 you know, type one diabetes manifesting. Yeah, potentially we're, you know, we're certainly a ways away from that, but there are a couple of implications therapeutically. One is that when people first present um, with diabetes, they often go through a honeymoon phase where they, they actually still are producing quite a bit of insulin. And you have a little window of intervention there where we could potentially get in, stop the further destruction and prevent the, the full, you know, development of frank diabetes, which would be really terrific. There are also a lot of people that are working on beta cell regeneration therapies. And there's been some discoveries here at Utah, even that, that we can actually regrow some of these beta cells over time. And if you can Amazing. stop that continued destruction of those cells, then it's possible when you combine this with one of these beta cell regeneration therapies that you now you hit it both ways and you could get people to grow back their cells. That's really the holy grail for us is to figure out a way to, to really cure a disease by allowing those cells to reform. That's spectacular um, and, and very interesting. I think that speaks to how, how uh, important this discovery is of seeing more specifically what's happening in causes of type 1 diabetes and, and reaching that goal of, of curing. I think I want to move on to the the next discovery, and this is actually one that you have a, a significant hand in. Um, it's you've been quoted as saying that that there's something that we could consider the new cholesterol, um, and that that new cholesterol being ceramides. Um, I think again, like diabetes, I think there's you know in the mainstream and, and in the public there's an understanding of on some basic level of diabetes, and I think there's a basic understanding that cholesterol has is an important marker in our health. Um, so I guess to kind of set up discussion about this, this discovery, uh, 
Could you talk about like what is cholesterol, what we've used it for in terms of an indicator, and then talk about the same for ceramides. What 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 is a ceramide, and and how can that be used as an indicator? Sure. So, um, you know, when we think about diabetes, we often think about sugar, right? You think about sugar metabolism, glucose. This is the the site of the defect. But it turns out insulin does a whole bunch of stuff related to the other things we eat. And we eat a lot of fat and we eat a lot of protein. And it actually, you know, metabolizes those types of uh, foods as well or directs the metabolism of those as well. And so fats in particular are, are a really complicated area of investigation that's really interesting. And so when we start to... Um, anything we eat, really, the body prefers to store that as fat. It's a really effective way to store energy for later. Um, yeah. So we convert everything into fat. And once you convert it to fat, it can be converted into different classes. And so one of the classic classes is triglyceride. That's a really good storage form. Uh, mm-hmm. We can also convert it to, to sterols, to cholesterol, which is another form that's, that forms a basic structural role in membranes. And also it, it, it helps form these lipoproteins that we use to deliver different fats to different parts of the body. And that's why okay. cholesterol has received a particularly large amount of attention. Both triglycerides and cholesterol are molecules mm-hmm. that are in the serum and they circulate around and they circulate because the body the liver really is trying to deliver these things to other places and it's carrying mm-hmm. some things along with it. Um, so that's what cholesterol is. And it's become, it's gotten a lot of attention because it's when it gets secreted in excessive amounts, um, either because of genetic mutations or because of poor diet or, you know, sedentary lifestyles or some combination of those things, uh, it will accumulate in blood vessels and give, and, and people will have heart attacks. And it was actually discovered because, um, Mike Brown and Joe Goldstein, got the Nobel prize for cholesterol found these young children that would accumulate cholesterol like crazy and have heart attacks when they were in their teens, which was just a crazy thing. And then they figured out that, Oh, this is because they don't metabolize cholesterol. Oh, it turns out that that cholesterol is, is this really big component in not just these kids, but in a whole bunch of people. And so this aberrant production of this lipid is we produce too much of it and it clogs up the blood vessels. That's what cholesterol is something we need. It's something that's critical. We also use it to make hormones. But if you make too much of it, then it becomes a problem. So, and, and in terms of it being an indicator, it's something that, I mean, obviously a lot of measurements are taken, like when we're doing health checkups to look at cholesterol levels, you know, it's common that we see, okay, we've got our LDL levels and, and, and then we look at our triglycerides as well. Um, it's become a popular part of just looking at kind of doing basic diagnostics when we do a health checkup. Um, and so I guess that kind of moves into this discussion of what's, what ceramides are and, and could you help <sighs> define what, what those are and, and kind of the role, I guess, relationship similarly with a variety of de- diseases, including diabetes. Yeah, of course. And love to talk about ceramides. So this is something that's <laughs> dear to my heart. Um, so when we convert these nutrients into fats, you know, and the fats can either be 
made as sterols. They can be made as triglycerides. And that's an oversimplification. There are thousands of different species in those two pathways. There's a third pathway where fatty acids can be converted into ceramides and a whole bunch of products of ceramides called sphingolipids. This is a small part of the entire, um, we call it the lipidome, <laughs> the array of, of fat cell, fat molecules that are in the body. Um, these ceramides are much, much less abundant than cholesterol. We actually think, though, that they start to form when the body has decided, look, we've got way too much fat. We've got way too much triglyceride. We've got way too much cholesterol. Um, and really, we've got too many fatty acids, which are the building blocks for those. We need to figure out a way to deal with this, this um, extra energy that's coming in. And it's coming in because, you know, we're, you know, we're not moving enough. We're eating too much, you know. And again, there's some people that have genetic abnormality. So what happens is that fat starts to spill over into this third pathway, this minor pathway that produces ceramides. And what we okay. found is these ceramides just do some real damaging things to the body. So we think they're really important for the development of disease. Okay, that's that's incredible. So if I'm understanding correctly, kind of when we we start reaching maybe a state where there's an imbalance or 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 too much of these these fatty acids as as you've described, we start seeing the presence of of these ceramides more, which as you state it has a, a negative impact towards a variety of diseases. I think something else that I'm curious about, and this is something that, that you and you and others have written about, is is how is it because I think the reason you've been quoted as saying they may be the new cholesterol is that it seems to be a better indicator of things like heart disease and things kind of coming someone's way. Uh, can you can you describe what its value might be in terms of an indicator, a health indicator? Yeah, so um, there, there are really two lines of evidence to think that these ceramides might be important. One is some work that we and others have done, um, particularly there's a very large group in Europe, um, which has measured ceramides as predictors of future disease. And <laughs> ceramides, kind of like when you go to the doctor and you measure cholesterol and you measure triglycerides, and their early data are showing that these ceramides are maybe even better predictors of disease than cholesterol, are at least comparable. And that's what we found as well, that they, they predict um, coronary artery disease or um, heart failure or diabetes or um, actually one of the best readouts is death, which is a terrible um, oh, wow. endpoint, right? But they actually predict that quite well. So um, these have started to be measured clinically. They're not measured clinically very often. And one of the reasons is we don't know what to tell people when they have really high ceramides. But I first learned out about this when, when, um, or learned about this when a woman called me and said, my ceramides are high. What do I do? And, um, you know, that was a very uh, uncomfortable conversation and dissatisfying conversation for both her and for me, because I'm not sure I had anything really good to tell her. So that's one piece of evidence is that these ceramides seem to mark disease quite well. And then I think the place where we've put a lot of our energy as a lab is we have gone in and intervened and asked, well, if we get rid of ceramides in disease models, and I'm talking mainly rodents here, um, mm -hmm. 
we can actually prevent the development of diabetes and heart disease and atherosclerosis and fatty liver disease by blocking the production of ceramides, blocking the conversion of this extra fat into this class of molecules. So that's the reason we think they're important. Um, I wrote an article comparing them to cholesterol and, um, and I, I, I may, I, um, I did that trying to be provocative. I'll, I'll be honest, you know, but I wanted to call attention to the scientific community that people were measuring ceramides now and we needed to get on the ball and figure out what to tell these people about so that I would have a response to that kind of, that, that woman <laughs> they called me really was the impetus for that article. But, but I do think there are some interesting comparisons. If you look at the Brown and Goldstein cholesterol story and our work with ceramides, that there are some interesting parallels and we're trying to take that as far as we can. That that's very interesting. And, and some of what you discussed, I think is another area I wanted to to bring up is, you know, you, you talked about looking into some forms of, of, intervention um, and therapeutics. And as you mentioned, you're working primarily on models such, such as mice. Um, my understanding, a lot of that has been kind of like a, a genetic treatment. Is that correct? Um, well, it started as a genetic treatment. We, um, there are several enzymes in this pathway that there are several different um, factors that help convert fat into ceramide. And we've gone through and manipulated all of them and some with drugs and some with genetic interventions. And we have found a favorite one, which we like as a, as a potential target. All it does is it takes away a double bond, it makes a really small chemical modification to ceramides, and it inactivates them. And we have found that if we get rid of that double bond to ceramides, then the animal seems to live fine, but it's completely resistant to these diseases. And so we're super jazzed about this. And we've been working with, um, with a biotechnology company out of San Francisco to actually turn that into, to make drugs that target that. And we've actually made some molecules and are, are super excited about that. That, that company is Centaurus Therapeutics. And so we're trying to turn this into a therapy with the hope that, that it'll be a, a safe intervention for people in the future. And that, and that's maybe a, a good moment to just kind of plug the fact that, that part of the, the mission and research here at the University of Utah is not just to make discoveries for, wow, that's neat, but, but to go from, as, as they say, bench to bedside in, in some way that, so it's very interesting to hear that you are on the way of like exploring therapeutics, not just, wow, this is a good indicator um, and predictor of, of health. <laughs> That's right. I, you know, I got into this because of my father, as I mentioned. And so you, the hope is that you're going to do something that's going to help people. I have to say along the way, you get really curious about the disease you're studying. So there does become an, an academic element where you just want to know, well, how does that happen? And, and oftentimes the best discoveries come from these sort of esoteric tangents where you go down and, well, that's weird. Let me go look at that. Um, and, and try and figure something out. So. You know, we do all of it at the University of Utah. We try and study systems and understand how they work. And and we either develop therapies ourselves. And in many cases, what we found is that that partnering with pharmaceutical companies, they're really good at one thing and we're really good at another thing. And so if you combine the two, you can really make discoveries turn into therapies. And so we have some pretty active um, interactions based on these basic science discoveries. We We've been able to develop partnerships with companies and then start to turn them into real therapies. That's, that's phenomenal. And I, I love to hear that. I, I think this is also a good, good segue into um, what, in terms of we we're talking about ceramides here. It's a, it's a good segue into another discovery that's happened, you know, related to 
diabetes and metabolic disease. And this is this is kind of the idea of rethinking obesity. And so we've discussed these 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 kind of like fat molecules and things that are happening there. I think something in my mind that maybe is is worthy of discussing is that maybe for for a layman such as myself, you know, we think about it's easy to conflate the presence of cholesterol and, and obesity. Is there would you describe there being a difference or, or a way that we can kind of uncouple some of these things in terms of how we think about them? Like, uh, is obesity kind of being a disease or an outcome of, of something happening inside of our bodies? Yeah, so, you know, obesity actually is probably a really protective thing. Um, you know, if you think about, um, you know, why one you know gets obese it's it's because we store too much energy and we try and store it for later and we store it in a form um mainly in triglycerides and actually keeping triglycerides inside the fat cell is a really good thing to do it's a really healthy thing to do and so um so i think obesity like cholesterol like triglycerides like ceramides it's a it's a marker of a disease state if you if you have obesity um, you're more susceptible to get these other diseases. But obesity by itself probably isn't causal. Um, it's okay. actually just an indication that you're on the wrong path, you know, that, that you're starting to accumulate too much energy. And one of the things we've found that's really important is the health of that adipose tissue, that's tissue that stores fat, really matters. And that if you have unhealthy adipose tissue, um, if it starts to feel like it's getting filled up with stuff, you know, then, then that's when you start to go down the path towards really severe complications. And so we have some really good investigators that have been studying that process of what makes adipose tissue healthy versus unhealthy, what makes it able to expand, what makes it unable to expand. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why we think really lean people sometimes get metabolic diseases because they really have an inability to store energy as in, in the in the fat cell and the adipocyte. Okay, that that's really helpful for me because, like I said, I think as someone who's who's not a, a health scientist, I'm not. You know, it's easy for me to conflate kind of as we start talking about these things that are a little more uh, in the weeds. You know, talking about ceramides and cholesterol and triglyceride and and identifying that obesity is just kind of a state and that there's there's something more specific to look at uh, in, in terms of. Uh, being prone to metabolic diseases. Um, so as we dive into kind of this discovery where we want to talk about rethinking obesity, uh, the focus of, of this particular study was getting into gut health and the microbiome. And I think this is something, you know, in terms of gut health and the microbiome, it's something that has entered, at least in some areas of, of more public discussion. Um, but could you maybe help define uh, for us like what what a microbiota what the microbiota is uh and and kind of how gut health might because I think these are terms that get slung around but maybe do we understand them and what they actually are and what they mean So we have within us in uh in our gut in our intestinal tract we have a whole bunch of bacteria that live there and they live there all the time and they do things for us they help us metabolize some of the things we eat and they make decisions about, you know, what kinds of, um, how, how things are processed. And some of those decisions are probably really good for us. 
and some were probably really bad for us. And now we all have probably experienced at some point in our life when you've eaten something that has these really bad bacteria that'll make you really sick. And these bacteria will come in and they'll, um, they'll make you feel really lousy and they take over, you know, your, your gut microbiome and they compete with some of those really good bacteria and make things worse. But, but what we've been, what a, a number of people have been studying around the world is how does that health of that bacterial population influence your susceptibility to other diseases? Mm-hmm. And can we, inter- is that a place where we could intervene? And June Round here at the University of Utah has done some just phenomenal work trying to identify, not just trying, identifying which of those bacteria in the gut actually are more likely to cause you to become obese are more likely to cause you to not become obese. And she's identified bacteria that are really good for you and some that will take you down a path towards metabolic disease. because They they change the whole way your body metabolizes the fat that you're eating or the, the food that you're eating. So her her discovery is is really remarkable in terms of being able to recognize those elements of the gut that that may have some kind of impact on on our metabolism and specifically outcomes in obesity. Something that that was identified that we want to highlight here is that it appears that the immune system may or may not target parts of of that microbiota, which may then have an impact on the outcome of you know, whether or not someone is able to, to metabolize and, and end up being obese. Um, can you talk about some of the implications in discovering this, that the, okay, our, our immune system can have an impact on our gut health, which then has an impact on our ability to, to metabolize and, and, and whether or not we're going to end up being obese. Yeah, it's, it's an, Incredibly fascinating area of study. So one of the things that people have found over the years is that you can swap out the microbiota, the, the gut bacteria from one animal to another. You can take um, the microbiome from a, a really fat animal, put it in a really skinny man, animal, and the animal will get fat. And you can do the, the reverse. And so that's pretty exciting and pretty profound. And then what June has done is she's gone in and, and shown, you know, which of those bacteria are driving a lot of that, which is really powerful. Um, but there's another level of complication, which is the host, the animal, then has a choice and, and helps influence what type of bacteria accumulate. So if you leave them over time, and that's because the immune cells will go in and they will shape the nature of that population and they'll encourage, you know, some cells to live a little better and they'll attack some others, or bacteria, some of these bacteria in the gut. And so what she's found is she can really that she's she's established some really interesting paradigms related to that link between our own immune responses and how that influences the 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 colonization of your gut in a way that then will make you either more or less susceptible to disease. So within within that area of study, is there is there some kind of therapeutic implication that might come from this? I mean, I, th- knowing that I think to me is, is an incredible thing to understand that that's something that our body is doing. And, and I guess I ask that because I think there's, there's popular discussion about things like fecal transplants, which to me feels maybe Im- impractical, but are there other therapeutics that maybe uh, are, are possibilities 
out of out of this under come out of this uh, this understanding. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's so exciting about that particular area of investigation is it's a little easier to envision a way to repopulate your gut with healthy bacteria that'll make you skinny than it is to come up with a drug that you have to take every day for the rest of your life, you know. And so can we can we go in and can we manipulate those bacteria? And the one thing that scientists have been able to do is go in and genetically manipulate bacteria to to change the way they do, do certain things. And so one could envision potentially down the road going in and you can change the bacteria rather potentially rather easily by using these molecular biology techniques that we're pretty good at. And so therapeutically, this is a really exciting area. We're a long way. We we're not at the stage yet that we have one of those types of interventions, Sure, but it's certainly something that's promising. That's, that's phenomenal. I, I find it fascinating, you know, just the system <laughs> that we are as a body and, and how so many different things can have an impact. Uh, to our our health and and our metabolic health, as we talk about that specifically here, uh, the last discovery that I wanted to highlight here is is one. I mean, I find all of these very fascinating. This one it was a, a little bit mind blowing for me. It is that there was there's the potential for an improved insulin that was discovered or or maybe inspired by the sea. Specifically, there are some subsets of cone snails typically that are hunters in, in bodies of water, they use some type of venom. Uh, and there's a few subsets of these that their venom actually has insulin within it uh, that induces a hypoglycemic shock. The reason I found this so fascinating personally was maybe, maybe you know, maybe you don't, but what would cause a, a health scientist to look at the venom of a cone snail from the ocean for uh, for insulin. Yeah, so this is a great example of one of those discoveries where people are just asking questions, well, how does that happen? And then it turns into this really um, potentially completely paradigm-shifting discovery that has enormous therapeutic implications. This has happened a couple times in the diabetes world. The um, So yeah, so the, these cone snails, they when their prey gets close to them, they secrete this form of insulin that acts really, really fast. And so if, if, if you know somebody who's had, has diabetes and struggles with it, every once in a while, they'll take too much insulin and this will cause their blood sugar to go down. And then their brain doesn't work very well because we really rely on, on glucose in the brain and they'll have problems. Well, what the cone snail does is it injects this really potent, really fast acting form of insulin into its prey. It's into the, the animal that's getting close to it. And that animal will then go through that same, that the fish that it's attacking will go through this, um, this same type of response where it'll, its blood glucose will crash and it'll get really slow and, and fuzzy. And then that gives the snail an opportunity to come in and, and eat this prey that's not, not doing very well because it's in hypoglycemic shock. So folks were studying that and studying how that venom worked and discovered that they had this molecule that looked like insulin. And then, boy, the health science researchers just pounced on that. And they thought that would have enormous utility for us, um, particularly now, because the insulins we give to people, they're slow. There are all kinds of problems with the way we have to manufacture them. If we could come up with a fast-acting insulin like that that was not only fast on but fast off, that would have enormous implications for health of a lot of people. So, and I think you kind of 
spoke to this a little bit, but something that I, I find very interesting about this and, and, and that this discovery alludes to is the fact that, you know, not all insulin is the same as in, you know, like you point out that a lot of our, our insulins that we take, a, a diabetic might take now may have a, a slow, slower release, slower action um, or reaction rather. And, and this particular form of insulin that was discovered coming from these, um, these cone snails seems to have a very, I mean, it wouldn't be useful for it uh, in nature for it to be something that happens slowly. The fish swims away and then goes into hypoglycemic shock later, you know, so it, it, it's obviously doing something a little bit differently. I think it's earth shattering to me to understand that insulin is not always the same. And so could you kind of describe that, that insulin has these differences um, and what it may look like? Yeah. So I won't get into the, the molecular changes that are, the reason these two insulins are, are different. Um, if you think about the way we produce insulin in the body, though, we produce, we produce it from these pancreatic beta cells that I mentioned earlier that are 1% of the pancreas. And so we now, when somebody has diabetes, we have to try and mimic the body responding to small changes in, in what's in the blood to secrete insulin. And we have to try and mimic that by injecting it once, twice, three times a day um, through the skin. Well, that's a very different thing. We're not directly injecting it into the bloodstream where we have an insulin that we, you know, has been manufactured in a way to try and make it something that we can store in the refrigerator and keep it stable for a long period of time. That's not really acting like the body does. That's our best attempt to mimic the body. Now we've gotten better at it. We've got pumps now so we can inject this insulin in, you know, in a, in a, real-time way, and we can sense the glucose is coming in. So the technology advances have been great. But this insulin still doesn't get released in the same way that the insulin in the body does. And so it takes 10 or 15 minutes, you know, yeah. before it really gets into the bloodstream and things like that. If you can adapt this cone snail insulin to make it, because it, it gets absorbed much more quickly. Otherwise, like you said, it wouldn't work for the fish um, or to, to take out the fish. Um if you can adapt this so that you could put it in pumps and you could have a, a more of a real-time response, this would be a better mimic of the body for sure in terms of establishing a more acute response to the high glucose and a more um, acute sort of uh, signal to, to tell the body what to do with this, this extra glucose. And we think that'll have really important implications for preventing diabetes and diabetes complications. That's spectacular and an and amazing, an amazing find. I like, I find that one very fascinating. Well, those are the discoveries we wanted to go over today. Um, but to close out uh, this episode of the podcast, I, I just want to pose one last question to you, which is uh, what is something that's happening in the university of Utah research community that you're really excited about that that's, that's going on currently? <laughs> Boy, there's so much. <laughs> um, it's hard to pinpoint one thing. I, I will all highlight one discovery that I'm particularly excited about, which is uh, by a colleague in my department, Will William Holland, and he's got a paper that's about to come out. It turns out the cells that produce insulin, um, there's another cell type that sits right next to them that secretes an anti-insulin. It's called glucagon. And glucagon is something that makes your blood glucose go up, not down. And Will has found that if you get rid of glucagon, then it has a huge effect in diabetes. So if you get rid so diabetes is not just because you have too little insulin, but it's because you have too much of this glucagon 
that is is working. And if he found out if you get rid of that glucagon, then you can do a lot of things to help help improve control of diabetes. But the amazing discovery he made is if you get rid of that glucagon, you not only make diabetes better, but the animal regrows the beta cells. So a diabetic animal that doesn't have beta cells, you get rid of that glucagon signal, and all of a sudden the beta cells grow back. Incredible. And he has been able to literally cure diabetes in mice models of, of type 1 diabetes. And so this is remarkable finding. And so he's trying to figure out how this is happening and how can we exploit this? And is there a way that we can take advantage of that to, to trick the body and to regrow, to trick the, the diabetic body into regrowing some of these, these beta cells? It's, I think it's about to come out and it's just a remarkable story. That's, that's amazing. So, and, and the reason I asked that question is just, it's not just that we've had some amazing discoveries. Discovery is continuing to happen here at the University of Utah. Yeah. And I, and I'm pulling that one out of a hat a little bit because there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's, that's coming right around the corner for sure. Well, amazing. Thank you so much, Scott, for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, and thank you. Thanks for joining us for Pioneering the Future, Stories of Discovery and Innovation at University of Utah Health. To find out more about the discoveries discussed today and many more important discoveries at the University of Utah, please visit discovery.med.utah.edu. Special thanks to Wes Sunquist, the genesis of this endeavor, to Julie Kiefer and Abby Rooney for production and supervision, and to June Round, Scott Summers, Danny Cho, Helena Safavi, and Maria and Matt Bettini for their outstanding research.